You don't have to be a machine learning engineer to help make the future a smarter place. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Valchunas. Eric, we've had some heavy hitters on the podcast lately, and this week is no exception. Yeah, you could introduce this person as the portfolio manager of the largest fund in the world and the first trillion dollar fund in the world. This is the first trillion dollar portfolio manager, almost definitely. We're not quite there, but it's 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 almost an inevitability. Almost definitely is a is a great hedge. He's somewhere in the nine hundred billion range right now, and we're talking about Jerry O'Reilly at Vanguard. And what's he do at Vanguard, Eric? He's the guy who makes sure that your Vanguard stock index fund tracks the index. Uh, right, the index lives in a vacuum, and he has to get as close as he can to it and deal with the realities of tracking stocks that come in and out, uh, corporate actions. It's a lot more complicated than it looks. But his one fund is the total market fund, which is the largest fund in the world. At, as you said, I think it's nine, close to $950 billion right now. And that's sort of uh, the biggest fund he runs, but he runs many. Many, and some are mutual funds like that one, and others are actually ETFs. Yeah, in Vanguard's case, the ETF is like a share class of the index fund. So that 950 includes VTI, which a lot of people probably know or own as part of the whole package. And that is unique. So in a way, the Vanguard fund assets per fund are a little higher than others because their ETF is counted in that number. And uh, yeah, I, it, it's possible if we keep having this nice market, they could hit a trillion in a couple months. Another thing about Jerry is, is that this is not a guy that we hear from often. No, I mean... The media is interested in like alpha, you know, who's hitting the home run this year, the Jim Simons of the world, the hedge fund managers, he's trying to tie for him, tying is winning. But what I find fascinating about him and others who do what he does is I think they're underappreciated as a whole and they're, they're rebating money left and right. So if you take the total market fund that he manages, 950 billion in assets, it charges a roughly four basis points, depending on the share class. And yet it only misses the index by 1.5 basis points. And an ETF or index fund should trail the index by the same amount of, as the expense ratio. So if you can get closer to the index and the expense ratio, that's free money back to the investor. And so in Jerry's case, he's basically returning about $230 million back to investors through uh, what we'll go into, which is securities lending trading acumen, and there's a lot of other uh, tricks and opportunities that he can do to, to return that money. Also joining us on this episode is Annie Massa, a reporter with Bloomberg News. This time on Trillions, the unsung art of passive with Vanguard's almost trillion dollar man. Jerry, welcome to Trillions. 
Thank you. I want to ask about what you do every day. You know, I think of passive investment and it seems like it might be relatively hands off. So what are you doing all day? I mean, there's a lot that goes into, I mean, our job, if you boil it down, it really is to deliver the performance of the benchmark to our shareholders. And now how you do that is, is a little more complicated. So we'll come in in the morning um, before we even get in, our data team has come in and they've already received all the indexes from the different index providers. And they've made sure that it's all the, the uh, corporate actions, the splits, the reverse splits, whatever else needs to take place is going to take place so that we know that the index that we're tracking to, to is the exact same index as S&P, as CRISP, as Russell, as FTSE, and all these different index providers are giving to us. So once you have that, that's kind of the foundational piece. And then it's okay, my fund and the index, making sure that everything that play, takes place throughout the day. So those things would be like all of the cash flows coming in, making sure that you have a really good understanding of what those cash flows are, any index changes that are happening over the course of the day, any uh, syndicate offerings that may have priced the night before, and if the index is making the change that day, there's both the upweight and also we need to be able to fund the, uh, the the buys that are taking place, any type of corporate actions that are taking place throughout the day. And then keep in mind that you know we receive cash flows all the way up until four o'clock. So I could, in total stock, for example, I may think that I have a, uh, you know, at 3.30, I could think I have a $500 million list that I'm buying today. And at 3.45, find out that, hey, 200 million has been redeemed from the fund. So all of a sudden it's like, okay, I need to stop. I need to change directions, need to, to reduce my list. Um, so there are all sorts of things that are gonna happen throughout the day that are gonna force you to kind of change the way you trade. And then of course, there's the actual trading itself. Um, so we are a desk of about 24 traders and uh, roughly split 50-50 between international and U.S. And our job basically is to navigate, you know, the market in terms of, you know, it's, it's a fairly fragmented market, as you know. So uh, you have 13 different exchanges and 50 different pools of liquidity. So when you have a trade list, what are the objectives? What is the urgency to get this list done? And uh, what is the appropriate strategy? So understanding all of that kind of goes into your everyday in terms of tracking that benchmark. And, you know, we, we want to be as tight as possible. We're talking fractions of a basis point. And we'll receive a scorecard every morning letting us know how we did the previous day. So at no point do we think, I hope we're tracking. We know exactly by 10 o'clock the next morning how our fund did versus the benchmark the day before. So you said you had 24 or so traders working for you. How many funds do you manage? Well, in total, we manage a little over $3 trillion across about 250 different funds. And not every single fund is going to get cash flow every day. There are some funds that really only receive cash flows maybe mid-month and end of the month. But the good portion of those 250 would be receiving cash flows on a daily basis, which would, will require us to trade. So, you know, fortunately, we have great technology, so we can, you know, one, one, uh, one portfolio manager can handle, you know, a number of different portfolios. And, and we work really, have a kind of a team concept here. So even though I might be running total stock market, I know that if I'm out that, you know, Michelle Louie or Bill Coleman can take over the reins and, and run the fund every bit as good as I can. So everyone get, kind of gets cross-trained. You have kind of a team of people that are assigned to your fund. Uh, and, um, you know, in REIT, for example, I manage the REIT fund as well. I know that Walt Naiman will be taken over if, if, if I'm on vacation or if I'm out. So here's a question. How do you play defense? You have hedge funds out there who know when the indexes are rebalancing and what might be added or subtracted from the index. How do you handle that? 
How do we handle it? Yeah. So we have, so when we have rebalances, which, uh, you know, uh, most of the indexes do uh, rebalances on a quarterly basis. So we, um, you know, have a team, a, a specific team on the desk that is our rebalance team. And they will, they have history of our rebalances going back years and years about how we performed uh, versus the, the benchmark. We will look at names. Um, you know, the, the index provider is going to notify us ahead of time. Um, uh, give us what they call a pro forma index, which is basically the index that's going to be in effect on the date of the index changes. And then we'll figure out what we need to trade in order to be totally in line with the index on that date. So, I mean, we're going to look at things like, uh, you know, has the volume increased in names? Has the price, what kind of price action has happened since the announcement? Get a sense for if, in fact, people have started to front run names in anticipation of the index buying on the day. And, um, you know, the one great thing we have on the desk is that we have probably average tenure here of about 15 years. So we have some traders who've been here 30 odd years, but great tenure in terms of understanding how these rebalances work. So we will be well aware of names where perhaps people have tried to get into in anticipation of, of, of uh, you know, selling it to the indexes on the date. And some of those names we may decide we're not going to buy anything ahead of the index date and just buy it on the day. And we also work closely with our teams in risk and in our transaction cost analysis team to make sure we're taking the appropriate level of risk to, minim to kind of understand where that trade-off is between tracking error versus having too much impact on a name. So I think, you know, you have a team that's been doing this for quite a while. It's not like there's a template that I can tell you, hey, this is, the, this is what you need to do every time there's a rebalance coming up, but just a lot of experience and uh, an understanding of how these things work. Sure. And, and this is a more specific example even, but all eyes are kind of on Tesla right now and the prospect of it being added to the S&P 500. And my colleague has even quoted you in a story saying that would be an all hands on deck kind of trading situation. How would you think about that approach? You know, S&P, uh, the way they, they handle that, there is a, a, an index committee and they will determine when, uh, you know, Tesla is added, if it is added. And I assume at some point it will be added. You know, if you look at the U.S. equities right now, you would say that Tesla is probably an outlier in terms of if you're looking at the, the S&P 500. Um, I think the minimum market cap to get in there is a little over $8 billion. And currently Tesla is a $345 billion company you know, a stock that's up 340% year to date. And so the only reason it wasn't included was one of the criteria that S&P has is that it has to have, uh, uh, you know, positive earnings for four quarters. And it's just crossed that threshold, right? It just crossed that hurdle. Yeah, yeah, a little while ago. So now it's available. So it is potentially uh, a candidate for inclusion. And as I mentioned, we just don't know when that is. But in terms of, you know, the potential for an ad like, like Tesla, I mean, it would be uh, one of the biggest ads ever in terms of notional. I think it would be the biggest in terms of weight in the index. I think maybe uh, Berkshire, when uh, it acquired uh, Burlington Northern, might have had a, a bigger weight in the index. But it would require indexes would roughly need to buy 35 to 40 billion dollars worth of Tesla or roughly 25 million shares. So that would immediately put Tesla as a top sort of 15 name in the index. And um, when large names have been added in the past, S&P has looked for potentially corporate actions that may have had a big cash component. So uh, if, if I'm a, a 500 manager and I know, for example, that there's a corporate action coming up. So, for example, when Twitter was added, um, 
it was back in June of 2018, and Bayer was uh, acquiring Monsanto, and there was a huge component of that corporate action involved cash. So they, you know, Monsanto left the benchmark, and then you know, if you were managing money, you could take the proceeds you got from this corporate action and use that to buy Twitter. So it helped to minimize kind of the turnover in the index. If we look out towards the end of this year, there really are no corporate actions that you would say there's a huge cash component to it. So we could maybe that might be the date that S&P decides to add it. They also have the ability to maybe add it, um, you know, at, at, at uh, the September quarterly rebalance. Um, so those are options available. You know, in terms of the trade itself, we obviously will be very much involved. Um, you know, previously, large names that got added to the S&P 500, sometimes the issuers will decide that they themselves are going to do a secondary offering to offset some of the indexing demand. So if we look back, you know, over the years, I think Facebook and Google did something like that. So if if Tesla was in a situation where they felt hey we we could uh, you know we could do with the proceeds and for whatever they wanted to use them for, they may decide to do something like that. Now I have not heard that that's the case, but that's that's the potential. This just comes to in a, in a bigger topic, which is how companies get in and out of the index. You run this massive fund, and there's this feeling and uh, argument that comes up once in a while that. Once a stock gets into your fund, which is the S&P 500 or the total market, it's like it can relax, right? It's now got all this constant bid coming, gets all the flows. But there's many cases of companies getting kicked out of the S&P, right? So Macy's, yeah. went, well, after it got out, it went down 36%. It's now out. Do you sort of feel like you're downstream from the choices that active managers make? Um, or is there some truth to the fact that once you get into the S&P, there is a a sense that you got a, a more comfortable life as a company? Yeah, I'm not sure I buy that, Eric. Um, you know, if, if we look right now, for example, at the S&P year to date, I mean, you're going to have companies that are up, you know, if I look at NVIDIA up, up 100% year to date, you know, uh, PayPal up, you know, in the 80s, you've got Amazon up 72%. And on the other end of it, you've got some of the cruise lines that are down 70, 60%. So these names I think you'd be hard pressed to make the argument that those, you know, either the, the ones that are doing well or the ones that are underperforming the market, that they were quite content just to get in there and, and sit back. So I'm not sure I, I buy that. I would say that, you know, if you think about all passive investors in total, we maybe represent 25% of the shares outstanding in terms of the ownership. So keep in mind that 75% roughly is non-passive investors. So I think things like price discovery, very healthy. Um, you know, yes, we are price takers. I'm not sure that's always a bad thing. We represent roughly 5% of the daily trading for indexing. You know, that, that's a relatively small number. So I think there's certainly a lot of positives, I think, by being included in the index. If you think about it from our perspective, we're the ultimate holder. We're going to hold this these stocks, you know, forever, potentially, as long as they remain in the index. And so our investment stewardship group, uh, you know, it's in their best interest and in our shareholders' best interest. These guys basically are going to reach out to these issuers to make sure that things like board composition, you know, corporate governance, executive compensation, you know, how they think about strategy, these types of things that are going to ensure that these companies are going to be around for a long time. So these are some of the things that I think are, are really benefits from being in an index. We just talked about defense. These are things you have to do just to make sure you don't slip. But when you think yeah. about a passive fund, it should miss the index by the exact amount of the expense ratio if you do your job well. 
we study this a lot. We, we call it the game of basis points and the unsung art of actually doing better than the expense ratio. So tracking difference would be the amount you miss. And in many funds, that amount is less than the expense ratio, which you could say is a rebate. So for example, your, uh, your total market, um, that's the, the biggest yeah. fund in, in the world, VTI, right? You miss the index by about 1.5 basis points, but the fee is four bips. You got 2.5 basis points that you made up on offense. Can you break down how that happens? Sure. So um, if, if we look at that two and a half basis points, there's there's a number of different things that go, that go into that number. I would say security lending is is a piece of it. So uh, you know brokers who are looking to borrow stock from Vanguard, they'll call us and and deal with our sec loan area. It is kind of an area that's separate from the desk, but we work very closely with those guys in terms of you know uh, names that they're loaning out and things like that. There's also the day-to-day -day trading cash flows. And there's the rebalances that we have on a quarterly basis, which we've been doing for, for quite some time. I'm a very experienced team working on those. Those are opportunities to add value. Syndicate process, uh, you know, obviously companies, you know, every day after four o'clock, the phones will start ringing with uh, brokers telling us that they have a syndicate offering. And because we show up as kind of a page one holder on Bloomberg, uh, they're going to want, want to know, are we, do we want to participate in this syndicate offering? And, you know, most times the index provider is going to make the change the following day. So we'll do an analysis. Does this make sense that we need to, you know, maintain our weight? And is it sufficiently large where the index is going to make the change? And we'll go in on those, the ones that we think are appropriate to go in on. And as long as uh, the price that we buy it at, you know, is below the closing price when the index is added, it's incremental value. It might be fractions of a basis point. But that will add up over time, Eric. So I would say the combination of, of, of SEC lending, uh, syndicate process, working index changes, working complex corporate actions. You know, there's plenty of corporate actions that they're, they're not easy in terms of, uh, you know, some of them are mandatory, which are pretty straightforward. But there's a lot where you get to elect. And, you know, what's the, what percentage should we go for stock on this deal versus cash? And you're getting feedback from our brokers to say, hey, this is what we think most people are going to do. And then we decide this is what we think is appropriate for us. And then figuring out what we elect and then what the proration will be and how index providers are going to handle that. There is the potential to add fractions of a basis point over the course of a year when you do that. And obviously, you know, having an experienced team uh, doesn't hurt. And I know these numbers get so small when you talk basis points, but we convert the, we, we multiply that savings by the assets. And you're looking at, for your one fund, it might be in the ballpark of $20 million returned or rebated back. Uh, if you look at all the S&P 500 ETFs and index funds, they return about 23. So if you add it all up, passive managers maybe get in the neighborhood of 100 million put back into the fund, which is interesting also because the SEC lending is typically lending stocks to hedge funds. So you're taking money from them and then you're playing defense against them. So in a weird way, it's sort of transferring money from hedge funds to the, to the little guy, which is rare and perhaps refreshing that that, that happens. And I, I guess I just ask you, do you find that people notice this? Like, it doesn't get much press attention. Um, that's why we call it unsung. Yeah. Internally, Eric, we, we, you know, I mentioned that we get a report every, every uh, morning around 10 o'clock to let us know how the fund was doing. Uh, and, and obviously the, the first column that I go to is, is the value add in terms of, you know, how is my fund done, you know, week to date, month to date, year to date versus the benchmark. And so we would know right up until, and, and that's what everyone focuses on. And, and, and um, 
you know, so among the desk, it's a badge of honor if we can kind of uh, incrementally add value for our shareholders. So it's something that we focus on a lot, you know, and I think it's not just the expense ratio. Well, the expense ratio is, is incredibly important and probably a great first filter. You know, obviously the lower expense ratio, Vanguard's been beating that drum for 40 odd years. I think other things that come into play are things like that tracking difference. And, uh, you know, obviously benchmark uh, can, can differ a little bit as well. So some of those other things will, will come in too. But, but tracking error is something that we are very much, uh, you know, on top of, yeah. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So, Jerry, you brought up this scorecard a couple times, and I got to ask you, what's it look like so far this year? Um, I would say the uh, numbers that Eric mentioned earlier, I would say uh, 2020 is, 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 is looks like it's going to be on, on course for that again. So another, another good year um, in terms of performance. So despite everything that happened, uh, you know, back, I would say in March, um, there were some of the rebalances were canceled due to the fact that, you know, people were just starting to go home for the first time, working from home. There were some questions around, hey, you know, is this the right thing to do? But I absolutely think it was the right thing to do at that time based on the environment. But you also saw the trading costs, uh, the spreads on stocks, the amount of of liquidity that was available kind of disappeared back in March. Um, so it was a very, um, you know, in terms of, you know, I've been trading for 25 odd years. Um, that was that was a pretty bad time to be to be trading because I would say most people, if you had kind of plugged in, uh, you know, what are my cost estimates for trading this list? The reality was maybe two to three times what the uh, what the expected cost would be based on the fact that just all of the the whole market microstructure had changed so much during during that period. Thankfully, we're at a period now where things have calmed down and it feels like things have gotten back to normal. But even despite that, we were still, uh, I would say this is still going to be a very good year for us in terms of performance versus the benchmark across the board. It's, it struck me, March especially, that must have just been a crazy time to be doing what what you do. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you think back, you've mentioned, you know, you've been doing this 25 years and, you know, you've seen the financial crisis 10 plus years ago now. Like, how did that moment in March compare with everything else that you've seen? Yeah, I would say it was greater than the, the global financial crisis in terms of just the trading. It was I mean, there were um, you, you'd be coming in in the morning and wondering if futures were going to go down limit, wondering, you know, what happened? What what did investors do last night? And, you know, thankfully, maybe it's the, it's the type of shareholders we had, but we actually had very few. Uh, of our investors that transacted, that got out of the market back then, and and um, a very very small percentage. So, you know, thank God for that because here we are, you know, up 50% from our lows on March 23rd. And uh, obviously, if you stuck with it, you were rewarded for taking on that risk. And probably every every fiber in your in your body wanted to say we need to get out because this is going to get worse. Um, but that's I think where if you've if you've gone through a few of these before. Uh, periods where you've had extreme volatility in the market, probably getting out of the market is is, is not the right thing to do at that time. Well, you, you mentioned um, how sticky Vanguard customers are, and you know that's a testament to Mr. Bogle. And you know, obviously they're they're probably making him very proud right now. 
Um, but but Jerry, I think you might also be making him pretty pretty proud because you know you're managing. You know, you mentioned the the three trillion dollar number earlier, but you also oversee the the world's biggest mutual fund and one of the biggest ETFs. And and by our count, I think you know you're somewhere in the the nine hundred billion dollars. Uh, uh, assets under management. Do you ever think about what it's going to be like to hit a trillion, which could happen? Like, you know, if the market takes off between now and the end of the year, and maybe there's a vaccine or something like we, we could see you hit a trillion dollars this year. Do you, do you have like an alert set up for that moment? <laughs> well, I hope we're not tempting fate here because back in February, the, the fund was at around 930. And I needn't tell you what happened over the, the next month. It, was, it, it the Assets got down below 600 billion. But yeah, we're, we're right around 950 billion right now. And, um, you know, so obviously trillion dollars is not that far away. It's, it's never been Vanguard's goal to see, hey, we need to see if we can get, you know, the first fund to a trillion dollars. But I think what it does uh, show us is that Investors have bought into the idea of, of low-cost, diversified funds. And obviously, the equity portion of a lot of our target date funds is, is total stock market. So when people you know, sign up for their 401k or in the target retirement funds and they say, hey, I want to retire in 2040, the equity portion of that is total stock. So I'm the beneficiary of a lot of that cash flow that is coming from our target date funds. So that's kind of has been a good source of the cash flows that are coming into the fund. So, you know, when when will it happen? I, I, I think there's a chance it happens later this year, but I, I, I wouldn't want to tempt fate. And, I, and, and to answer your question, yes, I think uh, the, Van, the systems folks are well aware that, uh, you know, things are going to need to change when we hit a trillion. And they're on top of that and have been on top of that for some time. Jerry, one of the things that makes Vanguard different from other ETF issuers is that your ETFs have this patented structure where they're a share class of the mutual funds. How does that make your job different than it might be at a different kind of ETF provider? Yeah. Okay. Good question. Yeah. So um, there's a couple of things I would say on that. So, um, you know, we sometimes will get calls from institutions who maybe they fired another manager and they would look to to bring money to Vanguard. And they will tell you up front, hey, it's, we're looking to find a new manager. We just want equity exposure. The mutual fund, we would not be huge fans of taking that money if we knew it was going to leave a month from now or three weeks from now. But obviously, if you have an ETF, they're going to pay their own freight on the way in. They're paying their own transaction costs, you know, bid-ask spread, whatever it might be, and maybe even a, a tiny fee from the, 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 uh, from the, the issuer if it's a, an ETF. So, for people who are short term, I think the ETF is is perfect um, and it isolates the fund itself. You know, in terms of, you know, we work closely with, with, with the folks in our capital markets group who kind of run the ETF. You know, I think there's great benefits in terms of index changes. We talked about some of the changes that potentially can happen. When you have cash flows coming into the fund, it means sometimes that you don't need to sell because you can take advantage of that cash flow to buy the ads that are coming into the index. So we think that that structure works well. You know, I, I remember when we started VTI, you know, um, and looking at the volume and celebrating when it went over 10,000 shares traded in one day. And now it's an incredibly liquid vehicle. You know, there are times when, for example, I need cash coming into my fund. For example, if I have X dividends going out and I can elect rather than receiving stocks into the fund, perhaps it might be more beneficial for me to receive cash and then use that cash to, to, to fund the uh, dividends. So there, there are lots of benefits to it, and, uh, and it works really well for us. 
And how much of your job now is automated? And are there aspects of it that you see becoming automated over time? Yeah, I mean, if I look back on, you know, start when I started at Vanguard, actually, one of the people uh, on the desk brought in a floppy disk this morning as a as a coaster, you know, as a for as a to, to hold her coffee on, just as a joke. And we have people on the desk who actually had never seen it before. And if I think back to the early days, we had one dot machine on the desk that we would use to send trades down to the floor. Very very different today, obviously, um, in terms of the technology available to us. Wait, you mean Vanguard's not running on floppy disks right now? <laughs> we're, not, we're not running on floppy. That's the rumor. Tell you back in the in the early nineties, uh, uh, disks were were how you you know you saved your program and sent it down. But uh, now, obviously, uh, you know, incredible uh, amount of attention is is paid to technology in terms of let's see what are the manual chores that we used to do that are now just fully automated in terms of uh, you know we used to. Back in the day, you would have compare reports, which would compare what we knew in the portfolio versus what 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 the bank, the custodian knew. Now, you know, we have reports that come in, and it'll it'll just automatically tell you in the morning. Boom, here's a break between you and the custodian, and is it as a as a result of maybe a corporate action, or what's the reason for it? And you can immediately focus on it. Whereas before, you were looking at these green bar reports. Today, I mean, we have obviously. So we have trading desks here in Malvern, also in the UK and in Australia. So we have, uh, you know, trading systems where we have consistency of data. We can pass the trade around in terms of if we have global portfolios, we can start it in, in, in Asia, then move it to Europe and then come back to North America for the guys who are working kind of on the international side. And so they just have consistency of data and great insights into terms, things like tracking error. Like I know, for example, when I go home at five o'clock, um, I, I'm going to sign off as the portfolio manager. We also have risk folks who are going to sign off. And we have a desk supervisor who will sign off and they can see exactly that based on all the information available at five o'clock, here's where your expected ex-ante tracking error is. We never had that kind of insight, I would say, 10 or 15 years ago, but now we do. And, um, you know, so so the type of insights, like I can look at total stock, which is 3,600, you know, stocks in the portfolio and I can see which stock do I have my biggest misweight versus the benchmark and what how is that going to impact, if at all, my tracking error? And uh, so really good insights that will help us to kind of track even tighter than we have in the past. Uh, speaking of that, um, I, I just have a quick anecdote. I, I went to interview uh, Jack Bogle back maybe five years ago, and I asked him about some of this game of basis point stuff. And if you look at the Vanguard 500 fund in 1977, it, the tracking difference was 65 basis points and the fee was 46. So it actually was worse than the fee. So bad job. Um, and he was telling me that back then they had a woman do They sent it to a woman who had a part time job somewhere else. Like, I believe, like, I want to say at a mattress company or something. But anyway, over the years that it's amazing to see that chart, the fee fell and the tracking improved to the point where it's now, you know, one point five basis points. But anyway, just a yeah. um, anecdote there. And then I just want to pivot to a question uh, Morgan Barna on my team had, which is a good one to ask a lot of people, which is. What keeps you up at night as we look forward, uh, you know, into the next uh, couple of years? What keeps me up at night? So I would say that we have uh, we're fortunate in that we have a really, really good team on the desk. Uh, You know, I mentioned earlier that we've probably the average tenure is about 14 years. And, you know, when I sign off in the evening after we've done all the trading at four o'clock, we've processed everything. I get a chance to go through my portfolio and make sure that it's right where I think it should be. 
I'm going to sign off on that. And we also have a risk team that's going to sign off on that. And we also have a, uh, a desk supervisor who will sign off. So there's almost three sets of eyes looking at every single portfolio. You know that your tracking error, your ex-ante tracking error is within acceptable, whatever the limit might be. Um, and you can feel when you leave that everything is in pretty good shape. Now, that's not saying there are days we come in the following morning and find out, hey, by the way, you know, a portfolio brought in $50 million. We were not aware of it. That's a, that's a different ballgame. But we have systems in place. We have lots of eyes looking at portfolios at the end of the day. So by the time I get home and take the dog for a walk, I think I can, I can, I can rest knowing that things are in pretty good shape. Um, so there's not a whole lot. I will say when we have rebalances and we're trading $50, $60 billion over the course of a week, I think it's, uh, there's plenty of days when I'm thinking about this is what we need to do the next morning, or did we remember to do this? And but but fortunately, as I mentioned earlier, we've 24 people who are probably thinking the same thing, and we've we've lots of checks and lots of eyeballs that are looking at the same reports. And so I think over time we we can feel relatively comfortable that even though it's it's a lot of money that we manage, we have we have really good systems in place and lots of people who've been through this before. So that makes me kind of uh, feel that we can we can relax when we get home. So, Jerry, um, you sort of just described the penultimate te team sport. I also understand that at one point in your past, um, you were less of maybe a team sport athlete and more of a long distance runner, middle distance runner, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, back in my uh, in my college days, I, I, you know, I grew up in Ireland, but um, I uh, went to Villanova on a track scholarship and, uh, you know, great, great memories of, of running for Villanova. And then even after school, I tried the professional running for a few years and, and uh, competed at the 88 Olympics for Ireland in the 1500. I would say there's a lot, lots of lessons that you would learn. And it's not just me. You know, there are other guys on the desk who are uh, fairly competitive in their, in their particular uh, sports. Um, but I think there are things like, you know, that you, lessons you learn from, from, from me, it was track, which were, you know, hard work, being able to operate in an environment where things can change in an instant. You know, you, you, you start in a race, you think, hey, we're going to go through it. We think we're going to go out in about 58 seconds, maybe for the first quarter. And all of a sudden, someone decides to go out in 56 seconds. Well, all of a sudden, you, your plan has to change. That happens, too, on the desk where you think I'm trading a list and, uh, you know, I run my $500 million list. And all of a sudden, you know, you get an institution called in and say, hey, we're bringing in an additional $400 million today. And so you have to change plans. There are things that happen late in, late, late in the day, like 3.55, and you have to be able to change and react in an environment where it can be fairly intense. And I'm really thankful of what track did for me in terms of being able to operate in that type of an environment. Am I right? Did you run the mile under four minutes one time? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's impressive, Eric. But then um, if I tell you that the world record was broken for the 5,000 earlier this week in Monaco. And the, uh, the gentleman who did it, I forget his name, but he ran three miles, you know, 3.1 miles for five kilometers in 1235, which is almost like three 401 miles back to back. So uh, <laughs> it just put things in perspective. So it's a long way of saying I'm glad I found a job away from track because I don't think I would have been able to support myself today based on the type of times they're running. Yeah. So I have to ask, how close to a four-minute mile can you run today? Um, not even close. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'm more of a biker these days. Yeah. So I get out on the bike. I uh, have a couple of friends in the neighborhood. Uh, we'll go out and do like 40, 50 miles on, 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 a, on a Saturday and on a Sunday. And it's a lot more forgiving on the knees and hips. And uh, yeah, so uh, the bike has kind of taken over from the running. I think all those years of running, uh, the knees took a little bit of a pounding and it, uh, the bike is way more forgiving right now. Yeah. Um, so Jerry, my last question for you here is, you know, what you've described, it's, it's like the, one of the most interesting jobs sort of in finance, I think, where, you know, the S and P 500, especially is this penultimate thing that, and you guys are sort of in the trenches, making sure that, you know, the, the Vanguard Vanguard's name does this thing as, as, as well as anybody in the business. And, and I'm just curious um, on sort of a personal level for you, like if you weren't doing this, have you ever given thought to like, what else would you be doing? Well, you know, I, I, I do. I, I tell you when I think about that is when I, when I go back to Ireland and, and I, I, I see guys I went to school with and they're doing, believe me, they're, they're doing very different things than I'm doing today. And I think how different it could have been if I never came to the U.S. and never, never ended up at Villanova. Maybe, you know, I don't know what I'd be doing back home, but I knew within, I'd say, a month of being on the trading desk here at Vanguard that this is what I wanted to do. I mean, I just couldn't wait on a Sunday night. I couldn't wait to get into work on the Monday morning. And when Friday would hit, you know, it was great because we, you know, it was a couple of days to relax. But Sunday evening, I was like, yeah, I can't wait to get back in. Here's what we got going on this week. And I think most of the people on the desk feel that way. They just have this passion about, about trading, that that's what they love to do. That's what gets their juices going in terms of, you know, we look ahead. We have a group that kind of picks out corporate actions that are happening over the next two weeks. And when I assign those trades to different people on the desk, you know, you can immediately see people doing the research, figuring out what's the strategy we want to use to, 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 to for this co complex corporate action that's coming up. I think everyone that we've had very little turnover on the desk. So I think when we hire people, we look for that passion. And certainly when it comes to funds like, you know, the 500 or total stock market, some of our kind of flagship, uh, you know, funds, um, there is incredible pride in making sure that those funds are performing and delivering the performance that our investors expect. And that's what gets us, that's really what satisfies us. When we get to talk to some of our shareholders at events, like when we used to have the Bogoheads meeting, you get to talk to people and they tell you, hey, your fund helped put my kid through college, you know, helped us acquire a, a nice home, uh, helped me retire early. Those are fantastic stories. And really that, that's what we care about is, is, is making sure that we're delivering the performance of the funds. And, th and, th and I think that's, I speak for the rest of the desk when I say that. All right. I thought of one more question, Jerry, and this is this is actually truly the last one. And it's one that we often ask people. Um, what is your favorite ETF ticker? Oh, it has to be VTI. Yeah, I'm a bit of a homer when it comes to that. I, I knew you were going to say that and it can't be VTI. It has to be something else. Uh, well, you know, its first cousin is VU, I guess, um, you know, which is the, the 500. But, uh, I, you know, if, if, you know, obviously people find out sometimes what I do and they were like, hey, what should I do? You know, I always say, well, take a look. I'm not telling you what to do, but take a look at VTI. Take a look at VU or, or the funds, whatever you decide is best for you. It's a tough question for him because Vanguard, I think, only has one cool ticker, which is VCR, which is the consumer discretionary. <laughs> And that's accidental. I they didn't even mean it. Um, I'm, I guarantee it. Although VU, you could argue, is interesting because it's Roman numeral five, OO, which is five hundred. Oh, the five. Okay, yeah, right. Did you know that, Jerry? I not until you just told me. Okay, I think that's why they did it. Or again, it was an accidental situation. But yeah, you guys don't really. Um, 
do much on the ticker front. That's just not your game. It's not our game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, we like to think. I think when we when we do come out with with funds and, and ETFs, you know, Eric, that that we're looking for things that are not not just a fad, right? It's it's that we think have investment merit. And I'm, yeah, maybe we don't have the most creative uh, when it comes to assigning tickers, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll. It's a long game. It's a long game, exactly. All right, Jerry O'Reilly, thank you so much for spending time with us on Trillions. You're very welcome, guys. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find Annie at Antonia B. Massa. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.